This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Dr. Sylvia Rim, renowned psychologist, clinical professor at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine and director of the Family Achievement Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. She spent nine years as a contributor to NBC's Today Show and is a favorite personality on public radio as a child psychologist. Families come from all over the United States for her help. Sylvia earned her bachelor's degree in sociology from Rutgers University and both her master's and PhD in educational psychology from the University of Wisconsin. She's a licensed psychologist in both Ohio and Wisconsin and has extensive experience as a counselor and lecturer and is director of the Educational Assessment Service in Watertown, Wisconsin. Sylvia has garnered significant accolades for her work over the years. The American Association of University Women's Wisconsin Women Leader in Education Award, one of Cleveland Magazine's 50 Most Interesting People Award, an honorary doctorate of Humane Letters from Mount Mary College, and recognition from the National Association for Gifted Children and the Excellence in Education Honor Award from Cleveland's Pi Lambda Theta Chapter, to name a few. She's authored many books, including How to Parent So Children Will Learn, Why Bright Kids Get Poor Grades, both of which were winners of the National Best Book Awards from USA Book News in 2008, Growing Up Too Fast, The Rim Report on the Secret Lives of America's Middle Schoolers, Keys to Parenting the Gifting Child, Raising Preschoolers, See Jane Wynn, How Jane Won, and See Jane Wynn for Girls. See Jane Wynn was a New York Times bestseller and featured on the Oprah Winfrey and Today Shows and in People Magazine. Parents, educators, and families seek help, counseling, and training through her books, tapes, lectures, newsletters, and much more. Sylvia, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Robert. Thank you. And from where did your initial interest in psychology stem, and how did your undergraduate studies in sociology pave the way for your pursuit of a master's and PhD in educational psychology? Well, actually, as I look back into my childhood, I think I was a budding psychologist even as a child. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as youngest in the family, I feel like I was always looking up at adults and figuring out how they were interacting and why they were interacting that way. Uh, but I didn't have a name for it. It was just what I did. And I uh, actually didn't change my direction and decide to go into psychology until after my husband and I already had uh, three children. And uh, a fourth actually was born while I was in graduate school. That was Sarah. And Probably what influenced me was to go into psychology was our own children. Um, sociology and psychology are very closely related. And as an undergraduate, I went back and forth between sociology and psychology. And I, I think I was a little turned off by Freudian psychology, which was kind of in style at that time. And perhaps I just wasn't mature enough to understand it. But uh, I, I loved sociology, but I kind of liked the psychological part of sociology. So that uh, even then, when I was majoring in sociology and going to graduate school in sociology, I was looking at the uh, environmental kinds of characteristics that 
made a difference in uh, musicians and artists, for example, without any thought at that time that I would become a psychologist specializing in in gifted uh, young people. So um, they do interact, and and in my uh, psychological perspective, I'm very sociological, so they're not far apart. At any rate, uh, specifically what made me decide to go into psychology, uh, I had tried going back to graduate school twice in sociology, and each time either I became pregnant or we moved. <laughs> so uh, uh, on the third strike, I didn't want to be out and take sociology again. And so, and in the meantime, we had children in school, and there had been a school psychologist who had tested my oldest daughter, Alana, and um, I had a very nice experience with him. And I uh, thought, well, I might like to do that. I'd like to become a school psychologist, assuming that it was a master's degree program and in two years I would have a career. Um, But as I got into school psych more and when I told my advisor I wanted to specialize in gifted children, he said gifted children didn't need school psychologists. (laughs) And I said, I thought they did. (laughs) Um, And uh, he said, well, maybe you should find a different advisor. (laughs) And I took his advice. Uh, (laughs) It's a good thing you took his advice, yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, he was an excellent advisor. He just um, didn't know much about the gifted area. And uh, although he was a very gifted person himself, and so he was just being realistic. And he was also being realistic in that schools do not choose psychologists that specialize in gifted education very much. So I really uh, put together my own specialty by finding um, opportunities to do papers in the area of gifted and an advisor whose specialty was in the area of creativity and uh, I was very interested in the area of creativity, so that made a lot of sense. And um, I wasn't, wasn't really in a hurry, um, considering I was, we were raising four children, to get into my career. As a matter of fact, I didn't see how I could do it until they were a little more grown. So I just continued on for my PhD and um, did a clinical internship, which allowed me to um, actually work as a clinician and have my own specialty, which is great uh, for the opportunity to work with gifted kids in many, many schools in many areas. Um, so I guess that summarizes what got me going to my direction. And I, of course, I do love what I do. And I think I've really made a big difference for many, many families. And you've expressed that you draw inspiration and experience uh, in your field from your family, your husband, two sons, two daughters, nine grandchildren. Uh, Tell us about how you draw from relationships with members of your family to strengthen your professional expertise. Well, our family, all of us, are all about um, um, a love of learning, uh, a wish to make a contribution to society, a valuing of research. And so, um, you know, uh, from the moment when I met my husband, and uh, we both valued finding careers. And uh, when it was clear before we got married that I would also be able to have a career, in some ways um, there, there were the seeds of, um, of the educational kinds of contributions our kids and grandkids are making. So um, 
Uh, we we really valued education. First, my husband got worked on his doctorate degree for a long time, and then I got my turn, and and our children watched us with our love of learning, sharing what we found out with kids. My husband would often tear out a journal article and say to one of the kids, oh, look at this, and there was a piece of research that they would look, look at and talk about, and so... Um, um, while we had a lot of fun, we also loved learning. The other thing is our kids were raised on a farm and with a very strong work ethic, and they learned early on the importance of hard work and accomplishment. So um, I think um, they've passed that on to our nine grandchildren, who uh, also are hard workers and have been good students and are interested in learning and interested in helping others and uh, uh, and interested in, in research and making a difference. So um, I, I, I uh, guess I've, I've learned a lot from them. I continue to learn a lot from them. We continue to share a lot of interests and a lot of fun too. <laughs> and, and how much of, because of, you, have, you have four gifted children and, and your grandchildren, and, and how much of that do you ascribe to their upbringing? Well, I, I happen to believe that uh, much of giftedness is environmental. Um, I don't mean that I, I'm trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just looking at gifted children in general uh, because I work with many, many hundreds of gifted children over a period of time, probably thousands. And um, always, um, as part of a child becoming gifted, uh, uh, at least one parent or at least one adult has spent a lot of time, uh, even in early childhood, enriching that child's opportunities, reading to them, talking to them, playing games with them, the kinds of things that make a real, real difference. And of course, the mes med message of education was always given very strongly. Uh, so um, I, I don't think it's, it's chance alone or genetics alone. I, I think that um, obviously genetics plays a part in in everything, uh, but it's uh, uh, from my perspective, it's only a small part. Hmm. And you've mentioned how much of it is environmental, and the Family Achievement Clinic focuses on psychological services for children, for adolescents, their families. Mm -hmm. uh, you and your team specialize in working with capable children who aren't performing up to their abilities in school, and uh, one of your books, Why Bright Kids Get Poor Grades and What You Can Do About It, truly helps both parents and teachers understand what causes kids to underachieve and how to reverse that process. So what's mm -hmm. your fundamental belief about the development of children who are really capable of performing successfully but don't do well in a formal education system? Well, um, sometimes it's the formal education system's problem. <laughs> uh, sometimes they're simply not challenged enough. So in some ways, some of the, some of the children I see, I'm just preventing their underachievement by finding school programs or school opportunities or making sure they're included in school programs where they'll be challenged. Even such things as skipping a grade or skipping a subject can make a difference. But for many of those um, gifted underachievers, it really is psychological in nature, so that um, they've internalized the sense that um, being smart means everything has to be easy and magical, and um, anytime something uh, feels challenging, they kind of go underground and avoid doing it, 
uh, for fear that if they work hard, they might turn out that they're not as smart as they hoped they were. So, in other words, they have too high expectations um, and, and equate giftedness with it should be easy. And, of course, um, if, if uh, the early years of school are very easy and if they're not challenged early on and they're the smartest child in the class, they become highly competitive, but in, in the sense they want to be at the top without effort. And so when they hit a wall, and, you know, that could be as early as kindergarten or first grade or could happen in fifth grade when there's a lot more homework or maybe not till middle school. And for some kids, it doesn't happen until high school when they hit AP classes. And can you believe it? There are some gifted underachievers that don't get into underachievement uh, until they're at some place like Harvard or MIT. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. Because uh, they basically have not really dealt with uh, being around uh, other kids who are smart and they've their whole self-concept is tied to being the smartest, uh, being brilliant and unusual. And um, it, it's, um, you know, it's a serious problem. Uh, so they, they get into habits, you know, they just don't do their work, they make excuses, they lie about homework, um, they... Um, call things boring. That's the most typical uh, phrase that they use uh, for anything that um, makes them think that they're not able to do it. Uh, I'll give you an example of a a young lady that I worked with who, uh, a very gifted child who had grade skipped and and she said to me, she said, you know, I like math. When I get the answer, I know that it's right. Um, But I hate writing because no matter what I write, the teacher might criticize me. <laughs> That's a kind of perfectionism that, uh, I mean, a kid is admitting to, but what she's really saying is her whole persona is tied to being this smart person who knows everything. And so basically underachievement is a group of defense mechanisms, and that kind of goes back to Freud that I told you I didn't like when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what it was, yes. and I, you know... So, you know, people don't want other people, people want other people to think they're smart. And if, if early on they're very gifted, in the making of a gifted child, they get a lot of attention. A lot of people say, oh, she's brilliant, or my gosh, she's going to cure cancer before they're five years old. You know, because the words they use or the insights sound so adult-like. And so, if they, their, their whole persona is tied to, I'm a, I'm a walking brain, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the more times they hear it, the more times they feel like they have to hold on to it. It's who they are. And so there's a real fear of not being successful. And that creates enormous pressure, doesn't it? Uh, enormous pressure. They internalize enormous pressure. And um, high expectations for uh, kids are important, but too high expectations, the superlatives, are what causes them to be in a trap. And you asked me about my family. Well, my my husband would always say to our kids, no matter how smart you are, there are other people who are smarter. No matter how dumb you feel, there are others who feel worse. And, (laughs) you know, there are a lot of kids who don't get that. (laughs) A lot of kids get, oh, you're the smartest kid in the school. You're the smartest kid who's ever gone through this school. So you, you can see that it's a lot easier for kids to understand, well, yes, they're smart, but there are a lot of other smart kids too. 
And of course, if you consider all the different ways you can be smart, there, there isn't any way that anybody can be at the top all the time. Can you describe the kinds of services that you offer and what approaches they entail? Yes. yes. Uh, well, we, we basically um, uh, do a, a full evaluation of the child so that first we meet with the parents uh, then we do some testing to understand the child's strengths and weaknesses. And then uh, we meet with the child, him or herself, and then meet back with the parents to provide a, a treatment plan or a report. And uh, we write that report in a way that is intended not only to analyze strengths and weaknesses, but to make recommendations for the parents at home and for the school uh, in the school environment. And um, uh, there are really things that work. Um, uh, for example, one of the issues that happens over and over again is that parents aren't united. So that one parent uh, uh, has the high expectations, the other parent provides an easy way out. And parents often don't realize they're doing that. They both believe that they're doing the best they can for their child and they're right and the other parent is wrong. And so, of course, they have to do what they believe in. But in that process, children uh, easily get into patterns of when things get hard, I can always find a parent to get me out of things who's very understanding and very kind and knows that I can't do these boring things. And that becomes uh, a pattern. So they, they just get in, in, into a habit of looking for an easy way out. Sometimes it's parents' opposition against the school. And so if parents don't support teachers, then children don't have to work in school and they won't learn in school. I, I also work in a, a school, Menlo Park Academy, which is a gifted school. And um, when we have new parents come in at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, many of those parents have chosen to bring their children to that school from a school where they weren't very happy and uh, often very legitimately unhappy because their children weren't challenged. But when they come to our school, I do tell them that uh, the teachers care a lot about your kids and uh, they're not perfect and we want you to communicate with teachers. But if um, you're oppositional with teachers or disrespectful to our teachers and if your children sense that you are, your children simply will not learn in our school. So if you're here, you need to support us and your children need to hear a clear message of you for support for their teachers. Uh, that will permit us to challenge your children. An example might be, uh, you know, in a challenging school where you do have some really hard assignments, kids can go home and complain to their parents and say, I want to go back to my old school. And they won't say it's because it's challenging. They'll say it's because it's boring and because they miss their friends. And parents will say, oh, my gosh, you miss your friends. You don't have any friends. Uh, and uh, it's boring. And here I thought it was the right school. Well, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it's just a trap. And it's not good for the children. It's not good for the parents. And that might happen with children as they first come to the school because they're not accustomed to being in the middle of the class. They're accustomed to being at the top of the class easily. 
So after they adjust, after we help them adjust, and I meet with every child when they come to the school to help them adjust, then it works out fine and they get used to being among smart kids. But you can see the, the many traps that take place for gifted kids. And of course, parents want to listen and understand their children. And children don't, they're not necessarily consciously manipulating. They feel scared. They feel pressured, and they're afraid they can't pull it off. And yet parents presumably should know better. Do you get, when you, when you talk straight, uh, as you obviously do uh, with parents, do you get pushback sometimes uh, from the parents about their children? Very rarely, very rarely. I am, uh, I, I really get the whole business of parenting. I know how to reach out sensitively to parents. I really believe the parents are doing the best job they can. And when I explain it, when I explain what feels like sabotage to their, uh, to, to their other parent, they get it. And I, I tell them what they can say and how they can deal with their own feelings, the child's feelings, and, and the parents. So, for example, it, um, I'll tell them, you know, it's only 100% of mothers that think that when fathers raise their voice, it's going to destroy their self, the child's self-concept. But when they do, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a prescription for, for failure right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, not, not that 100% of mothers sabotage their fathers, the fathers when they raise the voice, but 100% of mothers think a loud voice from a father seems different than their own voice. And I don't know what that is. It must be the volume of men's voices. So when I tell them, you know, when, you're, when their father raises their voice and they come to you and say, Dad's yelling me, cut it out. Um, you know, he, why, why is he doing that? Then uh, I say to mothers, you know, well, tell them if you did it the first time, your dad would never have to raise his voice. <laughs> it's only because he's told you five times. <laughs> And, of course, that is the case because the child has learned uh, accidentally uh, from the mother because the father raises his voice and the mother says, quiet down, that the child doesn't have to do what the father said. He, he's supposed to quiet down first. <laughs> and, I mean, it goes both ways. The, the message about mothers that comes from easygoing fathers is, oh, mom is too controlling. And then, of course, the child can get out of anything that mom tells them to do. So it, it takes united parenting and even united parenting and grandparenting because grandparents can sometimes sabotage parents too. Um, so if everybody's on the same page reasonably, I mean, maybe not 100%, but reasonably on the same page, then children don't get into those bad habits and they have, parents have high expectations, expect them to work hard. They're not impossibly high expectations and kids start loving to learn and finding out what they can do and building confidence. So um, it does work, but I can tell you if a child's already in a pattern of underachievement and it's been going on for a long time, um, by high school, it's very hard to turn around high school kids. We can do it, but it's, it's not easy. Um, it's... Um, it's, it's easier to turn around college kids than it is high school kids because they already have much more insight about what's going on. And little kids are very easy to turn around. And you almost don't have to do any therapy with little kids at all unless they need some social skills. But usually they don't really need the therapy. The parents just need a few sessions to get the idea and the child moves forward. 
And you mentioned uh, you mentioned creativity and what a key aspect that is, and uh, and kids finding their own way. How do you reconcile uh, learning things like music and language when the focus seems to be, especially since No Child Left Behind came along, the focus seems to be on science and math. You know, how do you how do you foster creativity within children? while maintaining within the system uh, what the kids actually have to do? Well, um, creativity is, uh, doesn't play, take place only in, in music and art. Creativity takes place in science and math and English and in, in every form. So when you talk about creativity, it's, it's the ability to question and to think differently and to, um, uh, quotes, get out of the box. <laughs> but... Um, to tell you the truth, the, the kids that I see come in, in the clinic are often kids that their parents call marching to the beat of a different drummer, and they haven't even found the box. <laughs> um, so um, uh, it, it is hard for schools to, to teach everything and be everything to everyone. But of course, the involvement in music and art, as well as sports, incidentally, are, are very important to um, building confidence in life. I don't mean that kids have to be on travel teams, but um, there, there's a, kids have to learn how to compete and collaborate uh, because the world is very competitive. And so um, being on a sports team um, gives them the, the rules of good sportsmanship are often the rules of, of life. You know, you do your best, you keep working at it, you practice, uh, you win sometimes, you lose sometimes, you're a good sport, you don't bully other kids who aren't doing as well as you, you uh, try to, to, to foster and support everyone as winners. So um, sports, music competition is the same thing. You work, you might play in an orchestra, you might um, uh, play in a band, uh, you, you play with a group of people and you uh, practice and uh, you, you hit a wall in music, too. Uh, even if you're very talented, uh, you ha- get to a place where it becomes very difficult and you have to discipline yourself. Um, in, in terms of um, encouraging kids in, in direct music and art uh, where there aren't a lot of career opportunities, uh, quite frankly, I, I think that uh, unless a child is extraordinarily talented, it's better for them to think of those kinds of things as avocations that are fulfilling in life, things, hobby, um, and and things that make your life richer, rather than get a lot of um, very talented kids hoping for the very few opportunities there are in in the real world of careers in music and art. I mean, the legendary star, starving artists are not so legendary. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, but 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 music and art and uh, we're always important parts of our family's life, and I think they should be important parts of everyone's life. And um, but um, it's hard to to measure those kinds of talents, and we do have to at least. Uh, make sure that uh, kids do have good skills. Uh, in gifted programming, um, we can go beyond those basic skills because gifted kids often learn those basic skills effortlessly and really need to be thinking more in depth 
and doing more creative thinking in their processing, asking more questions and having more discussions and, and, and uh, analyzing and synthesizing uh, material at a much higher level. And so we try to give them those experiences in gifted programming and, and try to move them along to challenging work uh, because they're going to have challenging work the rest of their life if they're going to fulfill their potential. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Dr. Sylvia Rim, Psychologist, Clinical Professor at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine, and Director of the Family Achievement Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And do you find that teachers um, buy into the, the truly creative aspects of subjects like math, like science? Uh, these kinds of things where, where teachers foster that kind of creativity within their fields? Well, you know, we do pretty well in science. Kids often find science to be a favorite subject because it's hands-on and experimental much more than it was when you were a kid and we just learned science from books. So I, I find that um, a favorite subject for many kids is science. The math is a little bit more problematic because of basic foundational math is not very creative. Um, it, it, it just isn't. I mean, you could, there are, we certainly try to get kids to think through, you know, how many ways you can do certain kinds of things in math. But there's a lot of foundational um, uh, mathematical kinds of things in those early years, which is truly boring. Uh, but there's a lot of English stuff that's truly boring, too. I mean, learning how to spell is, I mean, you write the word three times, there's nothing exciting about that. So, um, I mean, what I tell kids who complain about those boring things, which they really have to learn, is that, um, you know, it's like exercise for the brain, and, uh, you know, football players do boring push-ups. I tried that on one kid, and he said, I'd love to do push-ups. <laughs> well, there aren't too many kids who love to do push-ups, and not too many football players who love to do them either. But it's repetitive, uh, and yet it's foundational. It makes them stronger, makes them faster. And that happens with every skill. Um, so, um, I, I, I think once kids understand what the process is, and um, I was just working with a young man who came in earlier and said, um, I, 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 he came in for an all-day appointment, and he hates math, and he, he has very good ability to do math, and he loves science, and of course, they go together in the real world, and um, 
and I, I, you know, and I explained to him that there really is a reason for doing this repetitive math. You really do have to learn your math facts. We really do have research that shows that kids who learn their math facts are more likely to take more advanced math. And when you get to more advanced math, it really can be highly creative and you really will enjoy it and it'll fit well with science. That's the kind of uh, message that kids can hear and can understand better why they have to do it. And we have, we actually have research uh, done by a colleague of mine, Del Sigley, that shows that underachievers, if they understand why they have to do some routine tasks, are more willing to accept it. So um, there, are, there are some things that we really know work, uh, both in the classroom in terms of messages that teachers give, and, uh, and at home in terms of messages that, that parents give that really uh, encourage kids to achieve to their ability and fulfill their potential. And there are many kids who do. And so uh, I do, you know, I do uh, uh, go from school to school, from state to state, uh, to many countries, um, talking to parents and teachers about the kinds of things that they can do. And of course, I'm not the only one who does that. Uh, we, we, we know how to reverse underachievement, but um, like any other um, health issue, uh, every child is a little different, and uh, you have to kind of understand the psychology of that particular child to get them turned around, and um, that's what, what I do, and, and that's where I feel I've really made a a tremendous contribution. I think of kids that I worked with when they were little ones who are doing good things in life and making a contribution all grown up. And um, every once in a while, I'll have one come back with their own child. How <laughs> <laughs> wonderful to recognize, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and also to get these students to recognize the big picture, uh, I would think is extremely important. So they don't have to focus just on the task at hand, but to see the larger picture. Uh, would really help in their perspective. You know, and kids don't always thank you at the time uh, because they want to think that they've turned around their underachievement, and that's okay too. <laughs> Just seeing them turn around is uh, what we need to have, and I don't have to take credit for it. I'd rather they take credit for it. <laughs> and, and talking about the bigger picture, uh, tell us about your experience as a regular contributor to the Today Show and on public radio programs. Mm -hmm. It was just a, a wonderful opportunity for me. Um, I, I volunteered to be on public radio for uh, many years um, as a, a regular um, uh, parent contributor on, uh, with Tom Clark in Wisconsin. And uh, it was when they would have their fundraising on public radio and I would, they'd always invite me on because get lots of contributions for public radio. And so Tom and I decided we'd do a national show and uh, from Wisconsin. And then, of course, when I moved to Ohio, moved to Ohio. And uh, that was just tremendous fun. I think we did that. Well, I did it with Tom for about uh, three or four years, and then we moved to Ohio. I did it on my own because Tom was still back in Wisconsin for another uh, 10 or 12 years. And uh, people would call in and ask their questions, and I, I just loved it. Um, and uh, people all over the United States 
<laughs> would call in. And it was just great to make that kind of difference. And it was just common sense kinds of things that I've learned from my practice, and I helped many. Well, um, one of those times, uh, a friend of my oldest daughter, Alana's, uh, was visiting Wisconsin and happened to uh, hear me on public radio uh, when we had just started our show. And she was uh, pregnant with her first child, and she was a producer for the Today Show. So uh, she called me and um, invited me to be on the Today Show for a series of three segments, the first of which was on gifted underachievement. And she said what I had to do uh, was to have a post office box and an 800 number and give something away so they could have some idea of how much interest there was in parenting, because at that time they didn't have parenting segments on the Today Show. And what, what, year, what year was this? Um, that was uh, 1993, I believe. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, might have been 94, but I'm not sure. Uh, around there. So uh, <laughs> the, the, it was very funny because I went into uh, New York in a blizzard, and, and the, all the airports in New York were closed, so I had to actually fly to Boston and take a train down. Good thing I gave myself enough time. <laughs> yes. But it was, a, a, it was very fortunate for me because everyone on the East Coast, this blizzard extended, you know, right to the Midwest. And everybody was watching television that morning. <laughs> and there I was. <laughs> the definition uh, of fortuitous. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, I had this little five-minute segment on gifted underachievement. And um, then um, that was actually with Jane Pauley. She was just substituting for Katie Couric that day. Um, she wasn't a regular anymore. And then I did one thing with Brian Gumbel, and I can't even remember what it was I talked about, but I think I called him a wimp on that show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at any rate, I got, um, as a result of that little series, I got 5,000 letters and 20,000 phone calls. And a contract with the Today Show. <laughs> um, so, uh, and a renewed, that was renewed and renewed and renewed. And I would go in once a month. And first we had a series of three, but then it was just changed to one, one morning a month. I'd fly in. And it was usually Katie Couric who uh, in- interviewed me. She had two young children and was very interested. And uh, Janet Schiller actually became my producer because... Um, the first producer was not on the show anymore, but um, at, at any rate, she did come back, but she left to have her children. So um, uh, we would do various segments that um, that the hosts of the show were interested in. I would suggest various segments, and uh, it was it was just amazing to reach uh, ten million people. Uh, and give them parenting advice. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard from people I raised my children by listening to you on the Today Show. I mean, it was it was a really wonderful opportunity, and it was just fortuitous. It was just, I mean, there were, there were 10,000 psychologists who I'm sure could have done as well as I did. I was just in the right place at the right time and had the right opportunity. I'm ever, forever thankful for it. Um, it it uh, certainly um, made a difference in my life and gave me opportunities to um, have my books circulated uh, far and wide and um, to influence many people. And uh, I, I only wanted to find a little corner of the world where I could make a difference. That's what 
drove my career. So that was a much bigger corner than I expected. <laughs> yes, and, and uh, you've certainly made the most of that opportunity. Has the use of mass media as an educational tool uh, changed your model for educational psychology? Well, um, I, I don't think there's any question that mass media is very, very powerful. In, in, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's huge. Uh, first, of course, books were most important. And, and now, uh, although I still love to write and I'm still working on books, you know, I, I realize that there's, there's so much out there on the Internet that, uh, it, you know, there's just uh, a huge, I mean, I have a website and I get, I get um, 5,000 hits a day. <laughs> uh, people who are looking at my materials, I have uh, over 100 articles there for them to read. So uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful way to reach people. So people come into me having already read my, many of my, my articles or my materials or my books. And um, so th- they really um, understand that I'm, I can help them uh, move forward and they they like what they see and they know it makes sense to them yes it's it's made a huge difference and of course it's moving so quickly it is uh, for mm-hmm. sure and you you mentioned your books uh your best-selling books um and so just to to name two uh see jane Wynn about how a thousand girls became successful women and also rescuing the emotional lives of overweight children uh, what were your inspirations to write books on these particular mm-hmm. subjects? Well, um, uh, first let me tell you that um, the book that I have um, written that has probably sold the most copies is Why Bright Kids Get Poor Grades and What You Can Do About It. And it is about gifted underachievement. Well, after that book was really doing well, we started that as a self-published book, incidentally. And as a self-published book, we sold 75,000 copies. Which was huge, especially back then, right? Right. Yes, it was huge. And that was before I was on the Today Show. So you knew that there was a very big problem. But in, in, in some ways, my clinical work is mostly with boys. I see many more boy underachievers than I do girls. But, um, my daughters and I have also lived through a period of time where there has been a, a huge difference made for the opportunities in women. I mean, you've got to understand, Robert, that when I was a little kid, there weren't any women doctors. I mean, there might have been some, but I never saw any. There weren't women attorneys. There weren't women in government. There, I mean, there weren't uh, very few women artists. And uh, women musicians... Um, who wanted to play in a symphony orchestra, could only play when they couldn't get men. They would sit them in the inside. They had to pull back their hair, be sure to wear pants, because the orchestra would be embarrassed to have women musicians. Now, of course, they could be wonderful piano teachers or, or music teachers, but it was it, women were assumed just to have less talent. I mean, Madame Curie was the only woman scientist any of us ever knew. So... Um, uh, things have, uh, and women in business, they couldn't be CEOs, they could be small in entrepreneurs, but, you know, they, it just didn't seem possible. So when things began to change, it was very, very dramatic, and basically, um, we witnessed a pioneering generation of women, women who moved into careers that, where there were no women before, 
And so I talked to my daughters, um, Alana and Sarah, and, and said, uh, would you like to help me? Let's look at the characteristics of these women who uh, have become successful, this first pioneering generation. And because we didn't want to be biased against traditional careers, we selected 12 career categories, um, eight non-traditional for women and four traditional for women. Of course, among those non-traditional for women, many of them are quite traditional now, but they weren't then. And um, then advertised for women to participate uh, we had over a thousand that we surveyed and more than a hundred that we interviewed. And uh, we looked at their childhood characteristics from early on uh, through college and young adulthood. It looked at their ups and downs and their resilience and, and all the characteristics that um, propelled them to success. And uh, one of the most interesting findings, which is the reason we called it C. Jane Wynn, was when we asked the successful women uh, about their positive childhood characteristics, what they indicated most frequently was winning in competition. So um, these women had learned to love winning, and of course they had to be resilient, they had to lose too, um, and uh, that's why it was called C. Jane Win. But in order to participate in the study, they also had to indicate that their family and relationship life was at least above average because we didn't want to use this as a pattern for educating people who were just successful, but we wanted them to, we wanted parents and educators to look at this as people who were successful and happy. So we looked at all the characteristics and the patterns and parents and teachers could use to guide them. Now, there's not only C. Jane Wynn, there's How Jane Won, which was a follow-up with case studies of successful women. Then there was C. Jane Wynn for Girls, which is a book directed to middle school girls based on what we found. And hear this, Robert. On the way right now in press is Jane Wins Again. Can Women Really Have It All? A 15-year follow-up. And we have followed up on the lives of a small sample of these women and to, to, find, to share what they found was continued success or whether they struggled with um, having it all. And, of course, uh, that was, should be, uh, I, I think, reaching the public maybe around April. I, I hope it'll be ready by then. So um, that's still going on. Um, rescuing the emotional lives of overweight children uh, preceded uh, or just came about at the time when we recognized that suddenly we were having an obesity epidemic, and it was just a chance kind of finding. I had surveyed 5,000 middle grade kids for a book called Growing Up Too Fast, and I asked them about weight as one little item in the book, in the, in the research. And what I discovered was that overweight kids had more struggles than you can believe. They were taunted. They were teased. They had a lack of self-confidence. They had all kinds of struggles. And so um, I wanted to point that out and... Um, and, of course, I wanted to guide parents in understanding how to deal with kids so um, they wouldn't go in the opposite direction and have eating disorders, <laughs> but instead could have a healthy weight. And so um, when I uh, was a serendipitous finding in my middle school research, 
And when we heard about the obesity epidemic, it seemed like an appropriate message to get out. And that's what that was all about. And, of course, that won an award, too, and I was honored about that. So I really, uh, you can see that my goal here and everything I've done is to make a little difference uh, while I'm here and loving life and having um, a wonderful family. Um, uh, making other people happy makes me happy. <laughs> no, that's, that's very clear, and, and how you've expressed it makes it, uh, makes it quite clear. And, you know, it, it, it's so hard to quantify this, and also, so many factors go into the choices that we make as adults. Are there commonalities that you can share for what it takes to be successful in our chosen careers and pursuits? Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, first priority is hard work. <laughs> uh, and um, there's no question that you, no matter where you go, you have to work hard. But I, I, I do think that... Um, if you can find something that you're also interested in, um, I, I don't like the word passion. Uh, I think that's misleading um, because um, uh, obviously I'm passionate about my work. It's not that I don't like to be passionate about my work, and many successful people are. But in the whole process of discovering your work, you're not likely to be passionate. I mean, when I think about my undergraduate work and thinking, now, what do I want to do? That's the way most undergraduates are, <laughs> uh, trying to figure out what they want to do. And if, if I mean, passionate by in, at middle school level and at high school level becomes, you know, playing a gu- guitar and assuming you're going to be uh, able to do that th- your whole life or or deciding that you could uh, invent a, in a video video game and make a six-figure salary. So uh, passion is a very loose word, much like um, extraordinarily brilliant is. So I, I, if we encourage kids to find careers that are interesting, uh, expect to work hard, and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, feel satisfied with their work and much of the time because there's no work that's happy all the time. And uh, I, I also think they need to think about um, um, making a difference in some small way. If they only want to make money, that's okay as long as they contribute the money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, uh, yeah. uh, but if they, you know, I think that it, there should be a making a difference in a positive way for other people's lives. And finally, I, I think... Um, Kids have to understand they have to make a living and they have to support themselves. <laughs> uh, so it's 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 pretty good to be realistic and um, uh, temper our passions with reality. So it isn't that I don't want people to want to do what they want to do, but they need to be realistic. Otherwise, they'll be terribly disappointed. And um, and I think music is a field where. Um, it, it can be terribly disappointing, or art, because you can go through college and get all kinds of encouragement because you're extremely, extremely talented, and uh, yet there aren't enough positions and opportunities. And I, I think of a young woman who was in my C. Jane Wynn book, who her whole life uh, was geared to becoming a solo violinist. She played beautifully. She was extraordinarily talented. Once uh, she got to college, even though she was extraordinarily talented, it was readily apparent she would never be a solo violinist. Now, she could have played in an orchestra, perhaps, uh, and maybe not been first chair, but played in an orchestra. She was that good. But she had her, her goals were solo violinist, and she became totally depressed. 
And she got to a point where she couldn't even listen to music. It was so full of hurt for her. So I, I think, you know, and I, I certainly encourage music teachers not to get kids' hopes up too high because um, uh, it, 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 just enjoying the expression of music, the enjoying of the, the expression of art is a wonderful thing, but it, 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 I mean, the extraordinary talent and the bit of luck that goes with it is, 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 is hard to come by. And even um, in terms of giftedness, you know, I encourage parents not to say, oh, someday you'll win a Nobel Prize or, uh, you know, you're going to uh, cure cancer. I mean, those are, those are difficult goals because cancer is going to be cured by hundreds of thousands of scientists working together and each makes a small step. Um, there was a, a young man I went to school with a long time ago, a, a friend of mine and uh, all through school, and uh, he, he won a um, presidential science award from President Clinton. And um, not too many people uh, win that award. And uh, I saw him recently, just a, a few years ago, and uh, he is, has had a, an amazing, wonderful, interesting career, and he continues uh, to this day, past retirement, still doing his research and enjoying it. And, and he said, and I, I, I think it was humble, but I think it was true, he said, it was, it was, it was hard work and interesting work, but the presidential award was a little bit of luck. Um, because you have to be at a place in the research where you have to make a breakthrough, and it's a creative breakthrough. But simultaneously, other people are doing the research, so it's building on itself. And so being at that place where you make the breakthrough that gets that recognition doesn't mean the next guy in the lab right before you wasn't as important as you. It's just some of the timing. So... Um, I appreciated that because I, you know, when I, I talk about the Today's Show opportunity, you can see that. So it's, it's, it's hard work, interest, finding uh, a, a good life, and then with a little bit of luck, too. Sure. And you mentioned uh, about uh, people working together. Uh, you mentioned about the doctors and cancer and also about research and building on, on things that one, uh, one person does, one professional does, and then the other person takes from there and working in teams. So I, it, it reminds me of partnerships. And I want to ask you how your partnership with Dr. Daniel Weinberger and Dr. Christine Brewer at the Family Achievement Clinic came about. And what advice can you share about successful mm -hmm. partnerships? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's very interesting. And of course, it's, it's really nice to work with colleagues that share your values and share your interests. And um, initially, um, Robert, I, I had uh, four clinics in Wisconsin where I had 17 people that I worked with. And I had uh, quite a large group. And uh, then um, my husband and I had to make a decision of, about a move, and we moved to Cleveland, where he became chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And it was very hard to give up that clinical environment, where I also had wonderful colleagues. And I, I uh, when I came to Cleveland, I worked at Metro Health Medical Center and uh, Cleveland Clinic for a while. But then I got to the place where I, I didn't want to only do clinical work. I, you know, I had all my 
media opportunities and my books and my my talks and uh, so um, some of my colleagues who had been with me at Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health uh, were in a similar frame of mind and wanted to do our our work together and so we work colleagually and actually Dr. Susan Rakow will be joining us as well soon and so uh, we have a similar philosophy and uh, uh, we, we, we don't only work with gifted children. That is our specialty. We work with other children as well. We work with other families. I work with adults as well. And incidentally, I work a lot with uh, women um, because of the C. Jane Wynn research. I do that. So, um, but, but we have staffings once a week where we can discuss cases and throw ideas around. And, and uh, that's very colloquial. And... Um, uh, you know, part of what you do is what you accomplish, but it's 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 so good to to have um, people you you share your ideas with, and I think that's the case for uh, almost any field. So I do appreciate um, their sharing my interest with me. And you mentioned your new book coming out, uh, Jane Wins Again: Can Women Have It All? A fifteen-year follow-up. Uh, what's on the horizon for you, and and where do you intend to focus your work over the next um, few years? Well, I'm I'm doing the seventh edition of Education of the Gifted and Talented right now, um, and I'm I'm working on that. I um, am uh, continuing to to give talks. I've been all over the country this year, and will continue to do that. And uh, I, uh, I'm actually going to be doing a keynote address in Denmark at the World Conference for Gifted Children in um, August 2015. Uh, I'm not a youngster, so that's, uh, uh, I'll be delighted to make that contribution as well. But I, I also work at uh, Menlo Park Academy one day a week, and I, I love that. I love working with the kids and working with the parents there. Um, and continue to do my clinical work. And I would say that in addition to making sure we have enough time for family fun with children and grandchildren, I think that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I should say so. Uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful advice across the board, truly. And uh, for our listeners, the best way to reach Sylvia and to support her work is through sylviarim.com. And our listeners can click on the webpage links above this podcast for, for further details. And Sylvia, again, wonderful to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I really appreciate the interview. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.